This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Today, we have an extraordinary musician amongst us. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about that because uh, uh, Ira is going to introduce him, but uh, I think I'll just introduce Ira right now. Okay, Ira Gershwin. Yeah, it's Hershen. Um, I first met Stanley. Um, I got a call for a uh, TV movie called The Cherokee Kid. And, you know, it was one of those um, things which you have three days to do five weeks of music, you know. And I had known about Stanley through his association with Chick Corea, and, you know, he's an incredible, incredible performer. But, like, what I found in um, starting with that experience is how, what a wide uh, breadth of, of um, aesthetic, you know, music for film. You know, we've done several together. And, um, He's really an extraordinarily extraordinary talent. Last last year he did two tours, and uh, I was able to work with him on a, on a great album that shows the breadth of bass playing called One Two to the Bass. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, why don't you put your hands together for a very very talented virtuosic player, composer, musician, Mr. Stanley Clark. Well, we're we're going to do something a little bit. Uh, Hello. Yes, there he is. We're going to do something a little different in that we'll we'll have a, sort of a dialogue between us, and then we'll have some questions after. Yeah, let's have a little discussion. How's so, the food? Yes. Good. Good. I just want to say I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I really appreciate this, and it's nice to be in the room with uh, so many musicians, and hopefully we can talk about music. Yes. <laughs> music. Not that, yeah. Somebody said one time a long time ago, I think it was Alan Ferguson, there's a 180 degree difference between the music business and the business of music. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, Stanley, do you want to, um, let's start by like uh, just briefly going through um, how you got to where you are from where you started. Well, I, I was born in Philadelphia. <laughs> they tell me 1951. <laughs> and uh, I... Uh, yeah, I was. I really grew up in a real interesting family. My mother uh, was an opera singer and a painter, fine artist, mm-hmm. amazing. My father was kind of a, a, was a mechanic, very total opposite of of her. You know, it was, which uh, made for some interesting uh, nights at home. But uh, <laughs> 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 you know. But, you know, I, I got things from both of them. Uh, you know, my mother encouraged me uh, in the arts, you know. My father made sure that I could take a car apart and put it back together, you know. So, so that was really good. Um, but, you know, I started playing uh, bass at, at around 13 years old. Uh, prior to that, I played a little violin, a little cello, but it didn't quite work out. And... Uh, I ended up playing the bass, and basically, uh, what, what I what I was trying to do was um, I was following pretty much a classical bass uh, career. I wanted to actually, what I specifically wanted to do was be, I think, the first Afri- African American in the Philadelphia Orchestra. You know, so I I went all through school, went to music conservatory, and had it all together. Then I met uh, a young Chick Corea, who talked me out of it. <laughs> you want to play jazz that's what you want to do and i said yeah you want to meet miles davis yeah you know so uh that's what i did you know all right um so that was when was a turning point when did that happen how old were you then well 
Let's see. Uh, you mean when I met no, when Miles? You, <laughs> when you no, when you when, when the turning point happened for you, to going uh, for classical, you were going oh, to school. Oh, uh, let's see. It was I think it was my beginning of my fourth year in in college, so that had to be seventy one. I got you. Yeah. So, so you started touring then? Yeah. I went to New York, started touring with, uh, uh, I did a little bit of, uh, I did about a year and a half, close to two years with Stan Getz. The band was a really good band. It was myself, Chick Corea, Tony Williams, and Ayerto. And we did a couple records with Stan. I really enjoyed playing with Stan. He was, uh, I learned so much from him because, uh, he really came out of the bebop school. And he was a natural swinger, you know, so he, so everything, that was the language that he came from, even though the, the, the songs that Chick wrote, and I, I wrote a few things for him to play, uh, you know, were a little bit different than that, but he, he was right there, his time was, was swinging, and that was, no matter what we played, he was swinging. <laughs> and I always, always admired that. So, yeah, I played with him, I played with Art Blakey, did some records with Dexter Gordon, and, uh, and then, uh, Joe Henderson, I did a lot of things. When I was in New York, it was, it was kind of a dream come true for me, because when I got up there, I met all my heroes, and uh, I guess I was somewhat prepared as a bass player, you know, so I got hired a lot and I played with a lot of people and recorded with a lot of uh, musicians. And so I was really lucky. I'm really so grateful that I was able to uh, do that. So from that, mm -hmm. um, did you... Were you, you were touring here in the United States. Did you do tours in Europe before you recorded on your own? Yeah. I mean, when I played with Stan, we played all over. We played the States. We played Europe. We played the great uh, European jazz festivals that happened pretty much in uh, end of June, July, August. I think the, the window of time now is a little bit bigger, but back then it was pretty much the end of June and July. Yeah. Uh, so we did that, and... Uh, uh, one of the benefits of, of doing that was that I got a chance to meet a lot of the uh, European musicians right. that, uh, and then Japanese musicians that, uh, that were my age. And, you know, it was great. It was, uh, it was, you know, I met so many people in my travels. It was nice. Which, which brings <clears> me <throat> to somebody who's a, a European associate of Jean-Luc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 like I met Jean-Luc Ponty. I think I was 19 years old. And we played a, actually, he called me to play a concert. We, we did a concert in the south of France, myself, Jean-Luc, and the drummer, Tony Williams. Right. And uh, that was a really fun thing. He's a tremendous musician, yeah. tremendous uh, uh, technician, and really understands the language of jazz music. Okay. You know, so it's nice. Cool. Um, which... Now that brings us into something else. Now the mm -hmm. language of jazz. Now we were mm -hmm. we were talking at the table about, mm -hmm. and I was saying how eclectic Stanley is. Um, each kind of music that we have to experience, you know, has mm -hmm. its language and has its communication. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about, um, for you, how it's evolved, how you, what your creative process is, how 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 your experiences speak through what you have mm -hmm. to do, say for a record, or yeah, I mean that's a real broad question. But, uh, well, no, it's fine. But just to briefly talk about the language of, of different genres of music have very specific language. I'm I'm a big believer in that, and I uh, um, I have to go back to when I I, I spent two years playing with uh, Art Blakey. And, you know, Art to me was like a questionable character. He was, I don't know how to describe him in my life, but I'm happy that I did that because he was probably like whatever romantic thoughts I had about a jazz musician, Art was that guy. I was stranded. I didn't get paid. I did get paid. Yes, there were drugs. There weren't, you know, there were women. There was this. I mean, I was like 19 years old. Everything. I was like, geez, this is something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is amazing. So, uh, but one thing I got for Art really taught me how to swing on the bass, and he was very specific about it with his voice. Like, nah, this, you're not swinging. That sounds like shit. 
you know. <laughs> and then he would get down in the drums and play and show me this. Is, listen to my hi-hat. See where it is, son, you know. And it was really, really very specific, you know. Some one or some, some person may think it's a vulgar way. I didn't think of it at all. Right. I mean, this was a guy uh made some amazing records. It was a tremendous musician. It was just the way he spoke. But you know, coming through those words, I, I you know, I learned the language. He taught me how to play a ballad. He used to love to play um uh Lush Life. Right. And and then he had some music that he that he had written and uh, some music Wayne Shorter had written for the jazz messengers. I was very proud to be a jazz messenger. There aren't too many of us, you know, yeah, sure. that actually were jazz messengers and, and uh uh, you know, I was very proud of that. And I played that music and he really dealt with it like it was a, the Art Blakey University. <laughs> and, uh, so that was my first experience with, uh, bumping up into the language of jazz. And it was very specific. It's this. It's not that. It's this. And, uh, so I took that. And that, that, so, you know, for me, that was the very first time I was able to recognize that there were different languages, you know, and, and I still, you know, still today as a, as a, as, as a composer making records, my own records or arranging for other people or, and, and, and even doing film music where, you know, you can do a film and you could be dealing with five or six different genres within a film score. It's very important to understand the specifics and the language we've done that together right. you know and so so it's it's a it's it's you know it's a very uh it's a it's a great ability to have i'm very happy that uh grateful that i was able to um you know experience that and and and, and then gain that understanding as an example for everyone you mentioned mm -hmm. what art was mm -hmm. you know conveying to you could yeah. you could you encapsulate like the essence of like what he was he told you that you didn't know maybe uh, yeah it, it it you know it kind of boiled down to you know the like the end result he talked about his hi-hat his cymbal the bass should be here shouldn't be so tight lay back on the beat he, he was the first guy to explain to me like here's a beat but you can play on the front of the beat he even mentioned tony williams he's like here's these young whippersnappers you know that play on top of the beat you can play right on the beat you can play behind the beat and each one of those three things produce a different effect right. you know and um but the end result of of what he said you know it's it sort of he, he always went back to it feeling good or having he would say have some soul have some swing or, or whatever you're trying to produce it all goes back to a simple end result which I, which I think all of us could agree that, uh, when you have a piece of music, no matter what the details are and the specifics, you know, eventually you want to end up with something that is simple. Even if it's c complex, you, you can listen to, you know, a piece by Stravinsky. You can, um, you know, you can listen to a Chick Corea piece, a big, one of his big electric pieces, uh, but eventually when you listen to it, what you get, the in essence, you get something, hopefully, that's simple. So, you know, first of all, you have to like it. <laughs> it's like, hey, I like that. And that's a real simple observation, you know, so, um, yeah, and that was the thing, like, Art was very, very smart, very smart man with that. So at that time, all right, so you were with Art. Mm -hmm. And you met Chick. Uh, yeah. When did you um, start thinking in terms of a career for yourself as an artist? Because you mentioned '71, and you yeah. Well, I, I made my first solo record at I think I was uh, I think it was 1973, uh, and basically it kind of happened by accident. I used to um, uh, you know whenever I join bands or I'd team up with other people. I, I used to like to take on the chores of writing the charts out and even rehearsing the bands. I love rehearsing musicians. I love the, 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 you know, to me it's an art form. To me, Again, it's understanding language, being able to convey language. It's like teaching someone French or Spanish or whatever, or English, you know. Yeah. And um, I used to love to do that. So I, I did that a lot. And then I ended up writing music. And so 
I, w- I was in this one band in Philadelphia. I don't want to mention a name, but there was a trumpet player that led the band, and he collected all the money, wore the nicest clothes, but didn't know anything about music, <laughs> nothing. So I thought, wait a minute, you know, hold it. this guy is out here, and wait, this just doesn't make sense, you know. So I said, I'm going to make my own records, and I thought, well, wait a minute, I'm a bass player, you know. And then I sort of bumped into the, the thinking that, you know, how each instrument has a particular significance attached to it, you know, like bass player is a guy that, you know, from my generation, the guy that stands in the back, you know, the... You know, the trumpet player, saxophone player is usually the leader, the drummer is kind of over there, you know, <laughs> you know and, and, uh, you know, but I, I thought, ah, the heck with that. I'm going to make my own records. And I, Charlie Mingus was a big influence. I had met Charlie in 1970, beginning of 72. And he was kind of, he was the most revolutionary individual I ever met. I, I was young. I was very scared when I met him because we met in some club down in the village and he had heard about me and all I remember is the amount of food he was eating. <laughs> and he had a, like a real stoic, like a face, you know, he just didn't smile much, but I could feel the love kind of, you know, but it, it, he, it seemed like, you know, you know, he would have been better being a, like a, he was a great musician, but I mean, he could have been a, like a revolutionary, like, you know, because it was just very political, what he's, what everything was political, even though he was talking music, it was coming from that point of view. And he just basically told me, you know, man, make it, make your own records, do your own thing, have your own band. And that actually was the spark that did it for me. And so I started making my own records and, um, I had a great time. People were, seemed to be interested in those records and interested in the type of music that I was doing. And I was a little bit different for the normal bass player. And uh, I'm still at it today. Nobody's shot me or hung me or for anything, you know, right? So always looking around, though, you know. But, but, uh, you know, and it's it's a cool thing. And I see a lot of other young bass players, you know, really approach and embrace the instrument in a very serious way. When I started out, I played mainly acoustic bass and later got into electric bass. And, and, you know, because of the times and the music that I was doing, I got more fame playing the electric bass. But I really, what I am is a jazz bass player slash my hobby was playing the electric bass because back in those days, I think I mentioned to you earlier that there was really no study. There was, I think right. Carol Kay had a few books out, but that was it. There were real, there was no books for the transitional player, the guy that played acoustic bass and knew what a whole note was and understood right. what a C scale was. And there was no information for that kind of player to deal with that transition. So now there is. I'm, so I'm really happy to see that there's some great, 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 uh, young electric bass players out there, older electric bass players that really take the instrument serious, as well as the acoustic bass. The acoustic bass has a history that, as you know, it goes back, you know, hundreds of years, you know, so, so that's really nice. Yeah. In that context, mm-hmm. okay, could you talk <clears throat> in terms of your own, um, the, the singular difficulties or the problems that you encounter in one versus the other, like like what is what's the challenge for you playing acoustically, or what's a challenge? Is there a different challenge playing on a on a Fender or electric instrument? Well, you know, believe it or not, uh, for me, I feel more at home playing the acoustic bass. <clears throat> when I play the acoustic bass, you know, I have all the maybe I'm not particularly conscious of it but it's all those things i think of my mother you know all the music lessons i had great music teachers i had a a little italian guy named elisio rossi that uh was like uh i mean this guy i mean we're talking about a guy that would hit me with a paddle i went to this school in philadelphia called the settlement music school and it was very very tough very european i was just i was really being honed for that classical thing and the bow and the whole thing and uh i was so happy that i you know later when i look back in retrospect 
uh, you know, the studies that I had there because it really sort of gave me a, a technique, uh, a confidence on the uh, acoustic bass that I didn't have on the electric bass. The electric bass was kind of like finding an instrument that I had. I realized that I had to kind of set my own pace or set my own standard. Or I, It was... The nice thing about it was I developed my own style on it, even from listening to other people. It was a very, it was, I guess the only thing I can say, it was a new thing, the way we were playing it. So we sort of, you know, myself, Jaco Pistorius, uh, before me, Larry Graham, uh, uh, James Jamerson. It was just guys that sort of set their own, the way, you know, and then other people followed that. But, uh, uh, I still feel really at home with the acoustic bass. So, so the, to answer your question, the, 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 the difficulty is feeling as good on the electric bass as I do on the acoustic bass. Even though I had a lot of success playing the electric bass, playing in bands, making money, success, all that kind of yada yada, that stuff. But it was nice, but it, it, it just, it just, when I play the acoustic bass, it's another thing. It feels, I feel my, 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 my artistry more with the acoustic bass. So that's, that's it. Do you, do you find yourself going back to it more or is it just? I, I actually play much more acoustic now than I, than I've played. In the last four or five years, I've been playing pretty much, I mean, if I looked at it on a percentage basis, I'd say 75%, uh, acoustic. I play, uh, I had a nice, uh, band with myself. The French violinist Jean Duponti and Al Di Miola on acoustic right, guitar called the Rite of Strings, and we traveled the world playing basically kind of semi-jazz uh, acoustic music. The music's very composed, ensemble orientated, with areas where we can improvise, right. and and that was a lot of fun. Nice as a player and also as a composer as well. Right. You know, yeah. All right, so. Um, could you now talk about how you you made a transition into writing commercially? Um, now you talked about you were doing yeah. writing your albums. Yeah. How did that lead into um, the demand for you as a composer? As a, as a film composer? Oh yeah, or, or any, oh or well, you know, actually, actually, the the point where I felt really solid as a, as a composer. Uh, I was playing with Chick Corea. Now, I had written music before that, but I never really took it serious. I was just, yeah, write something, you know, fine, because I could write. And, but, it, but, but to be a composer, I mean, you can write music, but I, I believe, and I don't know how, what, what everyone else feels, but to be a composer, it's like a, it's like a hat. It's like a coat you wear. It's not just a hat. You know, it's like a thing. There's a long tradition with a lot of composers. I mean, so anyway, I, I was doing a record with Chick Corea, and uh, Chick said, uh, you know, Stanley, why don't you write something for the album? And Chick's, <coughs> Chick's, Chick's a masterful composer. He says, look, we're doing this record. The band was Flora Purim, great Brazilian singer, Ayerto, percussionist, Joe Farrell, saxophonist, myself, and Chick. <clears throat> so he says, why don't you write a piece? I said, well, you know, I don't know whether my stuff is good enough for this. He says, why don't you, look, if you write this piece, I'll call the album the name of your piece. I said, you gotta be kidding. You gotta be kidding. Are you crazy? <laughs> he says, yes, I'm crazy, but you do it. So I wrote this piece and we did an album. I wrote this piece called Light as a Feather. And that was the name of our album, Light as a Feather. And it was a really great album. It had songs like Spain, Chick's classic tune, Spain, on it. And it was a wonderful album, great experience. <clears throat> and that experience there really just gave me the spark. And I'm so grateful for Chick because... You know, I, you know, when I, when I speak in, like in colleges and speak to young people, uh, it's very important to, to, you know, sometimes we don't really know how, how much of an effect we can have on a young person. 
that comes and says A, B, C, and if you say, you know, the wrong thing, you know, you could send that person down a road that's just, it's just not fair, right. you know, and you can like embrace the person, you know, so Chick was, I really have a lot of respect for him because at that time he could have screwed me up and said, yeah, your stuff does sound like shit. So, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, or get away, you know, yeah, you're right. You don't need to write anything. But he said, no, look, he writes something and he obviously felt that I had the talent to do it. So I did it. So I always make a point to this day when I'm around uh, young people uh, or anybody that writes music or that has an offering in music or art in general to really embrace that person. I, th I feel that all, everything that comes from everyone is, is, is important. Mm -hmm. Some things are better than others. I mean, that's all relative, but, uh, you know, we all have creative uh, genes. We all have the ability to give something. It's a, it's a real real special thing. So I make a point of embracing that. So that helped me. And that literally started my career as, as a composer. And it was really, really nice. Okay. Well, I actually, I was thinking from that, from what you said, do you want, before we get into mm -hmm. what your history is going to do you want to talk about the Musicians Institute and how you got involved yeah. with that, being that you're talking about? Oh, the scholarship. The scholarship. Yeah. Well, we've had a 10-year, me and my wife, we have uh, for 10 years, the last year was our 10th uh, year anniversary, we raised money for kids to go to um, to uh, to college. It's, re it's really that simple. You know, it's just we raise money, we have friends, and they give money, and, uh, and we we give at least, I think... We've given at least four scholarships a year. You know, we raised last year. We were we we did pretty well, and and it's a nice thing. It's just, uh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> you know, when I when I went to college in Philadelphia Music University, I I I, um, I remember, you know, not having money to eat. Right. You know, I would buy rather I'd spend my money on rosin. Right. You know, for the the bow or get my bow rehaired or whatever and I would just sacrifice and not eat you know so one of the things that we do in our scholarship is we just give cash awards mm -hmm. we hope the kids don't buy drugs or right. or you know etc etc but we give these small cash awards because we know that that's important for for kids but it's a lot of fun you know one year um we had um we had a it was I think it was our eighth or seventh year. We had a really big turnout. We had Stevie Wonder came. There some guys from the uh, was a rock band, Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Sheila E. John Luke was there too. Hmm? John Luke was there. That was another year. Oh. And uh, uh, Sheila E. A lot of uh, Sinbad, the comedian, was the MC. We had, it was it was really nice. I was telling you because Stevie Wonder was trying to impress us playing giant steps, you know. And he did. And he did it. He had like three Very good, fast. three good courses. I was impressed. <laughs> <laughs> three, man. He was imagine. It was it. it was on the song. He he was he had done a couple of songs, and yeah. I think it was Yester You, Yester Me. Yeah. And so he took, you know, he had lived the ending. He got yeah. into a solo. Riff yeah, he's just you know, playing, and, and out of that, so the band is watching, and Stan, I'm watching Stanley, who had already played and bloodied his fingers. Yeah, and I, so all of a sudden, in the middle of this, Stevie starts playing giant steps at one, and they're like, "What?" And, and I'm going, "Stevie, are you kidding? You must be crazy." <laughs> he and said, was, "Yes, I am." And, he, and we did it, and he had three great choruses. <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, yeah. So, do, so. <laughs> Stanley has given a lot to the to the young community yeah. here. Um, so now, would you talk about like how you eventually made it into commercial writing for film? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that was an interesting thing. I was doing a TV special with um, uh, it was a Barry Manlow TV special. He was had a bunch of jazz musicians on there, and there was a director. His name was Steve Bender, and he said, "Stanley, have you ever written music for film?" Uh, you know, I said, and to be quite honest, I'd never really thought about it. I, I just, you know, kind of my love for film music was, uh, I loved the movie Spartacus, you know, and all the James Bond movies, because the theme was so profound. You know, I was like, whoa, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, I like that, you know. So I said, no, I never really thought about it. He says, well, I have this little show called Pee Wee's Playhouse. 
<laughs> I said, Pee Wee's Playhouse, huh? What the hell is that, right? And uh, it was a little show for kids on Saturday, and uh, he says, we have this show that deals with childbirth, and we need something that's a little more sophisticated, and, you know, go get yourself a DX7. And uh, I think it was like the first year the performer program was out. He even, he even knew about that. He says, get yourself a digital sequencer, a computer. I said, man, whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you, know, you know, so I thought about it. I called him up and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I did. I had some help from a guy that knew about computers and I got this DX7. Terrible sounds when you think about it yeah. back then. But anyway, <laughs> we, I got it together and I, I got an Emmy nomination for that. And I thought, I didn't even really know much about that. I said, boy, this is something, you know. And, um, and I just never looked back since then, yeah. you know. So it started there, you know, pretty uh, on a small level. And then I sort of developed and got into doing more films and a lot, a lot, a lot of television shows and series. And it was kind of a quiet thing. I really didn't really promote it too much to my friends. It was just something I did when I was off the road. And I enjoyed it because it, it gave me an opportunity to compose. Right. You know, the money is great, obviously, so that's a... Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, would make one like that job, you know, but, uh, but, but it was, it was a great chance for me to, you know, just to write every day, write music. And then eventually when I started doing features and uh, writing, you know, orchestral music and different ensembles and then getting a chance to work with musicians like you, when, we, when I'd have an action picture, I think we were doing a Joel Silver film. Romeo must die, and like I had like three hours to finish the thing. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Do this by three o'clock, you know. And Joel was real tough, as you know, you know. And uh, so I needed help, and so I got a chance to work with uh, people that were, uh, you know, great musicians that understood that domain. And I, to be quite frank, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from you, yeah. actually doing that. So thank you, Ira. Thank you, Ira Gershwin, right? right. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they made a mistake with the letter because I yeah. haven't received the royalty check. Um, all right, so <clears throat> talking about that aspect, we were talking mm -hmm. about genres and language. Mm -hmm. As a as a jazz musician, mm -hmm. as a fusion musician, mm -hmm. how what if any were there difficulties in in the. Uh, What's the right word? Uh, transmogrification or whatever mm -hmm. into film, mm -hmm. the genre of film music for you. What are the differences that you notice? Well, you know the. I mean, the the differences, you know, from being in a world where you compose music to perform, you know, specifically being a jazz musician to a film composers. I mean, the obvious difference is, is that the music that I was writing to perform in was, you know, written to perform. You know, and and there were. It, it 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 appeared like there were less restrictions. Uh, doing music for film, you know, there's parameters that you're dealing with, a certain time frames, thematically, you know, you know that sort of thing. But you know what? The more the more I've, I've I did it, I realized that actually there's a there's a lot of freedom that you can have in in doing film music, and it's very similar in a lot of ways to writing music for records because I recognize. That, you know, from being a film composer, I recognize that many times when I wrote music for records, you know, I was dealing with a scene. You know, I was, I wrote some music for a, a chick, for a Return to Forever album, which Chick Corea, Lenny White, now Lee Miola called The Romantic Warrior. And our theme was kind of medieval. Right. And even though it wasn't a movie I was looking at, you know, subconsciously I had this picture of, right medieval times and so there were parameters there and we wrote music with that with that in mind so so there's there's similarities there uh i i think in film composing obviously time frame is what used to kick my butt a lot you know i just and then you, you deal with some really interesting characters some of the most crazy most intelligent you know questionable people i've ever met <laughs> <laughs> Don't hit your head there. <laughs> see, see, just the, just the thought of that, man, it got freaked you out, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, just, you know, some really interesting people, like a lot of the directors and producers I've met, you know, all of them different, very unusual, unique to themselves, and just, you know, I never knew what was coming when I'd walk into a room for a meeting, you know, and and, and it was all a learning experience for me, and um, again, grateful that uh, I got a chance to experience that. So... Where are you now? What what's what's coming up for you? Um, you went, you said you did a couple of films this last yeah, year. Yeah, last year I did a couple of films and this year I'm going to just I'm just kind of because last year was a really heavy year because it was a the reunion of Return to Forever and I did another tour with another group and I kind of said yes to everything. This year it's going to be a little less touring and I'm going to make another record. I finished a trio record. Um, earlier this year with a, a really sensational Japanese a young girl plays piano. Her name is Hiromi. Amazing, amazing player. And Lenny White on drums. And we did a, a straight ahead record. And it's all acoustic. <clears throat> and I hadn't, I, I don't think I've ever done that under, under my own name. Just straight ahead, swinging really nice. This year, uh, I have a little record company. I'm going to, you know, produce some records and do a little bit of touring and I'm going to do another tour with Chick toward the end of the year. I have a little tour that I'm doing in the summer with a, a bass band. It's three bass players, drums and piano, myself, Marcus Miller and Victor mm -hmm. Wooten. And that's a lot of bass on that tour. You know? Very loud. But, uh, you know, just in hanging with the family and you know, my kids have graduated from college this year, so that's kind of nice. Um, on Stanley's record, I was privileged to work, uh, do five charts for this album called One, Two to the Bass. And the re and what I want to let you guys know is, is that the first track is a rap tune, but it's a spiritual tune. Yeah. And it's a very, and it's a very literate tune. And I think, that one of the things about that element's very, I, to mm. my mind, is very eclectic. Has a lot of different um, mm. styles in it, and I'd recommend hearing it for that reason, especially if you have preconceived ideas as to what certain, uh, especially that style is, because it's a very stylish record, mm. and it's a very literate record, and um, it was something I was very proud to be involved with. Um, so... Um, Stanley, why don't we see if we take yes. some questions from the sure. audience, if there sure. are some. Um, anybody have any? Yes. If, if there's time, you know what, I, I like to go and sit in at clubs, Jazz, but I'm playing here September 2nd uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. Myself, Chick Corea, Lenny White, Chaka Khan, and Jean Luponti. Ooh. We're putting a, like a band together for that night, and um, yeah, it's going to be nice. I, you know, I love Catalina's. I, I think I played here once with uh, the great Cuban pianist, Rubicabal, Gonzalo Rubicabal, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the club's still looking good. All right. The food's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Any yeah. other questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. Some of the... Films? Films, yeah. Theatrical. You know, I don't, I can't really specifically say in the last 10 years, but I'll just name some films that I liked. I like, I mentioned that Romeo Must Die. I really liked that film. I did a, a film, the life story of uh, Tina Turner called What's Love Got to Do With It that I really like. Um, I like, uh, a film that I did, uh, many years ago called Boys in the Hood. Uh, that was like one of the first, um, hip hop films that, uh, sort of, uh, John Singleton. I actually did three films with John Singleton. His first trilogy, Boys in the Hood. What was the other one? Poetic Justice and Higher Learning. But in Boys in the Hood, uh, that was a film. John was very young, 23 years old. And it was kind of like his film looked like a really good student film. But but what he was dealing with was um, kind of uh, what was happening in the hood, as they say. Young African-American males dealing with the issue of, uh, you know, black-on-black -black crime, that sort of thing. It was a very, very, very cool film, actually. I really enjoyed it. Um, <clears throat> I did a film 
that I saw the other day that I had forgotten about, uh, Wesley Snipes film called Passion of 57 that I really, really liked because that was, that was done on a real shoestring budget. And the idea was to make the film appear to, to, to cost more than it actually did. And we were good at it. <laughs> I think the film cost 15 million or something. Looks like about 30 million, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you say because they're urban. I yeah. think the question was, is it did that influence the way that you scored it or your approach to it? No, um, no, because you know I have to go back to the John Singleton film just to explain something to you. One of the things that used to bug me about African American films, or I used to call them black exploitation films, is that all those films used to you know used to have a like you'd hear the wah wah guitar. So if a guy's walking down the street, waka, 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 they're making love, waka, 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 uh, discussing something politically, waka, 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 you know, it didn't make sense to me, you know, it was like, it was so, I, I, I didn't want to go as far as saying it was racist because it was all black people doing it, you know, <laughs> I couldn't use that one, but it, it just, you know, it, it was just, you know, when you look at people, irregardless of what color they are, what you know, we all have emotions, and if you're really intelligent about it and take the time, and you want to pick music that will go with that emotion, like if, if you could imagine an emotional tone scale, which at the bottom is like death, and at the top is serenity of beingness, and in between you have all these emotions, antagonism, you know, like this, uh, action, whatever, you know, apathy, all these different emotions, you know, if you're a, a film composer that that uh, you, you want to become a little scientific about how you approach those things, I mean, you can come up with music. Like Ira's a master at that. You know, like you can come up with music and chords and and harmonies for that. So what I did when John, when John Singleton brought me the film. Uh, Boys in the Hood. It was very raw, and and I really liked it because of the, just just thematically what he was doing. But he was very smart. He was very young, and I and and you know I I love telling this story. I I hope I've told it many times, and I hope John doesn't get embarrassed again. Or but you know anyway, what happened was we were there. He's list. He's look looking at the film, and we're spotting it, and he says, you know. I'm going to need some hip-hop music here. I'm going to need this there. He says, but see this scene where the guy's with his father. You know, I want the music to be timeless. He says, I want you to use, you know, those instruments, man. You know, the, the guys are going like this. You know, they got these things that are rubbing up against the thing there. And he literally said that to me. And even though it was raw and kind of, you know, you know, he just didn't know. But instinctively, he knew that he didn't want a wah-wah guitar. You know, guys talking about his fight. He didn't want, like, whack a whack a whack You know, gee, Dad, you know, man, this is, you know, this is a very beautiful thing. And I said, John, you want violins. You want a string orchestra. Now, look at our budget. We can come up with a small string orchestra. And, you know, n now, John, when he does, he does a lot of movies right now. He's quite quite the filmmaker, you know, but back then, you know, he learned something then, you know, and uh, and that movie, the thing I like about it, I mean, just to get back to your question about the urban movies, the thing that I liked about those movies is it has the urban flavor, because, I mean, let's face it, we all have flavors where we come from, you know, and back to language, again, it is also attached to ethnicity, too, you know, so that was there. But at the same time, I, one of the things that I like is orchestral music is, I, I can only say it's glue. It transcends race. It transcends, you know, when someone's there bleeding their heart out about something, a woman that they lost or a guy that they lost or a guy could be complaining about a guy that he lost. And anything could be anything, you know. Don't laugh. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you want some music. You want something that's, that's, you know, that transcends all that. And for some reason, orchestral music does that. It's just a, it's, it's the most fascinating thing to me. You know, I love it. I love it. So that's in that movie. All, all, all the movies that I've done, uh, the big, the bigger features all have 
you know, the, the, you know, urban music as well as orchestral music, which, uh, you know, uh, it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go get Passenger 57, man. <laughs> Check it out. There's a couple steaming bass lines in there. I must say, I wish I could do that stuff now. Uh, yeah, I, I always try to, you know, uh, you know, to be quite honest, actually a lot of directors have called me to, to do film scores and would want more bass than I would normally want. I, 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 you know, like, man, can you, you know, play the bass, you know, here? I said, man, it doesn't work there. You know, just, I'd have to show them and they go, oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so it's, yeah, I've done all that. I think I've, uh, you know, I would hope, I think I've done all the different angles. I've started out with a bass line, put an orchestra on top, uh, uh, you know, for vice versa. You know, there's a movie, Romeo Must Die, uh, has a lot of bass stuff in there. There's a lot of odd times. I have one scene, uh, a Jet Li movie, yeah. He, you know, he's like kind of discovering why his brother was killed or something. And, and I have this bass line that's like in seven, you know, and it just, it just goes around and around and around. And I started with that and very light percussion. And then to, to make all the hits and make, make the scene more dramatic and the music more dramatic and just make the overall thing more cinematic, I, I use the orchestra. To, to shade and hit certain things. And it was very, really worked out well. Yeah, and I've also used acoustic bass in movies. Yeah, both. You know, uh, I think more electric bass than acoustic, but uh, I've used both, you know. I think in, in you know, in, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, you know what? All, all the movies that I've done, for some reason, I don't know, just once I get into reading the script, I look at the movie, the footage, Whatever I write, it just, it just seems to come out, the music just seems to come out unique to that film. I mean, like, you know, I know how to write an A minor chord. I can, you know, give the instruments. But just for some reason, each film, it just, it just sounds, it's just different. I, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, Miles Davis, actually, I played more over his house. He wanted me to play in his band, but it was a funny story. I, I, I was at one point in my life, I had the, the, uh, I was in this quandary, you know, I, I, uh, I was asked to, I was friendly with Chick, I was playing with Chick, and Eddie Gomez was leaving Bill Evans, and Eddie called me and said, man, you know, you should play with Bill, because that was the really cake gig for a bass player. I mean, everything that Bill did, every song, there was a bass solo, you know. It's great. And Miles Davis said, you know, you know, hey, come play in my band. To hell with those guys, you know, <laughs> basically. And I met him, um, and we lived really close to each other in, on the west side uh, in New York. And so I'd stayed with Chick because for some reason, you know, we, it was, you know, it's kind of, this actually brings up a good point. You know, it's it really important to me. And the older I get, it's, it even becomes even more important. To just the value of playing with people that you like, you know, it's very, it's, you know, you can become sick when, you know, physically when you're around too many things or people that have bad energy. You know, it's very important. I'm, I don't want to change the subject here, but it's something that I believe, you know, so I was fortunate. My mother used to tell me about that, you know, this bad energy, you're going to get sick. Don't leave that person she was like an Indian so she that's where she was coming from stay away from the bad energy <clears throat> so not that Miles was bad but I just could tell I was going to have some problems <laughs> and Bill Evans you know man that's the only thing I still look to this day I mean God you know I used to listen to those records and listen to Scott LaFaro play the bass and just like, man, I wish I could, you know, just a dream of just, so I did get a chance to play with him. I, you know, I did an audition and all that, but, uh, but I went with Chick. Chick was just really happy, great musician, you know, had a goal, had a plan. I could see the road. I could see the somewhat the end, you know, and it just, it just seemed to be more logical to do that. Uh, not only musically, but spiritually. 
you know, and that's a big, big deal for me. That's very important, I think. Why, why Spartacus? God, I tell you, man, that is one of the most, for me, one of the most beautiful scores ever. It's just perfect, you know. It's just, uh, when I, when I watch, I watched it, uh, about a week ago. So I have a couple little tapes. I put it in, you know, my wife looks at me. She says, you're not getting teary eyed, are you? No. What are you talking about? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> yeah, but that, that, that movie provokes, you know, uh, emotion. And to me, if you have the, if you, as, as a composer, not just in film composing, but any kind of composing, if you have the luck to come across something thematically that comes out of your heart, or it comes off of a screen, or comes out of a book, or whatever, just out of your head, and you have the ability to write something and pull some heartstrings, do it. Yeah, I do a couple uh, what I call master classes. I go to, you know, colleges. You know, I've been to Berkeley a few times, and um, I still teach bass every Sunday when I'm in town at my house. I have uh, many, 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 many bass students the, that I've taught. And, uh, probably know a few of them. And, uh, but I've been doing it since I was in my twenties. I like to do that. I think when I round out my, my career or life, I think that's where I want to end up teaching, you know? Yeah. I really like it. It's so much fun. Yeah, we were, we were talking about the fact that it's one thing to have the knowledge. It's another to be able to communicate it. You know, and that's, that's real important, especially with this. So uh, I don't know about you, but I've had a thoroughly enjoyable time. Let's uh, give it up for Stanley Clark. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.